hello again, I'm Tony Payne and welcome to another episode of The Painful Truth. Another freebie, whole list kind of episode for everyone out there. And that's partly because of the nature of this particular episode. As promised, this week I'm bringing you the next instalment of the evangelistic book that you guys have been helping me write. It's based on two ways to live. And in this episode, I'm kind of a bit excited and a bit daunted at the same time at the work I've been doing on this draft, because there's nothing more bracing than writing about the death of Jesus. That's what this episode's about. But I also couldn't escape the feeling of really not wanting to muck this up. We're getting to the heart of things, to the heart of the gospel. And you kind of want this part to be especially good. And I'm not sure it is yet, but I'm sure you'll help me figure that out and improve it. So just a quick recap, this chapter, which is chapter four of the Two Ways to Live evangelistic book, is based on point four of Two Ways to Live. That's the part of Two Ways to Live that says, because of his love, God sent his son into the world, the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus always lived under God's rule, but Jesus took our punishment by dying in our place. And the first installment or the first half of this chapter that I sent out a couple of weeks ago dealt with those opening two statements under the headings of his arrival and his life. And now we come to that third statement about Jesus' death in our place. And so this second part of the chapter is simply entitled His Death. Now, as with all the other episodes or chapters of this evangelistic project, you can go across to the website, to the painfultruth.online, and read the text as well, and even download a PDF of the text with numbered lines and paragraphs to make it a little easier to refer to. And of course, if you want to go back and catch up on earlier installments and earlier chapters, you can also do that, especially if you're a partner of The Painful Truth, like a full paying subscriber uh, who gets every edition every week. You can go back and look at all the past installments as well. And of course, it's easy to do that at the moment. You can sign up for a free trial to The Painful Truth and get every edition every week. But enough of the preamble, let's get on to the second part of chapter 4. Let's get on to talking about Jesus' death. If you've never really read one of the Gospels, you might assume that they're mainly about Jesus' teaching and parables and miracles, that it's all good Samaritans and prodigal sons and walking on water. And there is certainly quite a bit of that. But as biographies, the four Gospels are strangely lopsided. They say very little about Jesus' birth and early life. Mark and John don't even mention these subjects. They ignore pretty much his adolescence and young adulthood. They recount in snapshot fashion the key events of his public ministry that took place over an approximately three-year period, his teachings and parables, his healings and mighty works, his clashes with the religious authorities. But then in each of the Gospels, the narrative then slows right down. The Gospels spend chapter after chapter recounting in depth the final days of Jesus' life, and in particular, the details of his betrayal, trial and humiliating death. It's as if the events of Jesus' arrival and birth and extraordinary life are an extended introduction. The real action of the story is the death of the hero. And if this seems a little strange to you, then join the party. It was also very confusing for Jesus' first disciples. 
Throughout the Gospels, the disciples become increasingly convinced that Jesus is the one, that he's the Messiah King or Christ, whom God has sent to save his people and rule the world. About halfway through Mark's Gospel, Jesus comes straight out and asks his disciples who they think he is. Peter answers with typical directness, You are the Christ, he says. This is in Mark chapter 8, verse 29. And you would think this would be a kind of climax to the story. After several chapters of following him around and watching everything and not always covering themselves in glory, the disciples have finally done something right. They've realized who Jesus is and said so. You'd expect bells to be pealing and fireworks to be going off. But no. Jesus responds in an unexpected way. He starts by strictly commanding them not to tell anyone else what they've come to know about him, which seems odd. Doesn't he want people to know that God has sent his Christ into the world? And then he explains to them that he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. That's a quote from Mark 8 verse 31. And this is even stranger. Jesus not only wants to be anonymous, it seems, as sort of under-the-radar kind of Christ, but he insists that the Christ is going to be rejected and killed by the key religious leaders of the Jewish people, the very people you'd expect to welcome the Christ with fanfare and festivals. Peter is incredulous and takes Jesus aside and starts telling him off. To which Jesus gives the famous reply, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, I can't help feeling a teeny bit sorry for Peter. He has, after all, just gotten something right for pretty much the first time in the gospel story so far. He's recognized that Jesus is the long-promised Christ, the Saviour King. And understandably, he thinks that everything is now on the up and up. All that remains is for Jesus to be anointed king, to defeat Israel's enemies like the occupying Romans, to establish a new and glorious kingdom, and for everything generally to be hotsy-totsy. This is what any of us would have expected a glorious Christ-saviour-king figure to do. What's the point of waiting centuries for the Messiah to turn up? only for him to say, oh, and by the way, they're all going to hate me and kill me. It seems crazy, and from a human point of view, it is. This was Jesus' rebuke to Peter. You're thinking along human lines, not along God-type lines. God has a completely different plan for what his Christ will do and how he will establish his rule and kingdom. That plan unfolds over the following eight chapters of Mark's Gospel. As Jesus heads towards Jerusalem and towards the final week of his life, two things begin to increase in intensity. The angry opposition of the religious authorities and Jesus' predictions about his impending death. Twice more, he takes his disciples aside and tells them that when they get to Jerusalem, he's going to be humiliated tortured and killed. The disciples remain dumbfounded and continue to make stupid comments. In chapter 10, for example, just after Jesus has again predicted his death, the brothers, James and John, two of the disciples, take Jesus aside and ask him a favour. 
Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory, they say. This is in Mark chapter 10, verse 37. When you do become the glorious king, which we're sure is still going to happen somehow, can we be your deputy king one and deputy king two? What about it? As a Jewish friend of mine once commented, talk about a pair of pushy Jews. Jesus gently rebukes James and John by suggesting that they don't really know what they're asking for. There will be two spots available, as it turns out, one on his right and one on his left, when he's crucified a few short days later. Are those the positions they're asking for? But then he explains in the clearest words so far what he's been talking about the whole time. His kingship, his Christhood, is not the kind of rule or lordship that we specialise in as humans, the kind that we know so well from history and from our current political leaders, the kind that is lordly and arrogant and obsessed with power. It's quite different. Jesus says this to them. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, that is, of the rest of the nations, that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In the kingdom that Jesus is going to bring, greatness is servitude. And this is from the king all the way down. For even the king himself, the Christ, the Son of Man, as Jesus was fond of calling himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the greatest, and he undertakes the greatest possible service to give up his life as a payment or price or ransom for many others. His approaching death was not only going to be the result of the hostility of the religious authorities, in some way it was going to be a payment. It was going to be a ransom that set people free. Now, if James and John and the other disciples had been good readers of their Bibles, which at the time was what we now call the Old Testament, they would have known just what Jesus was talking about. Scattered in plain sight throughout the Old Testament are numerous events, laws and prophecies that foreshadow just such an idea. The Old Testament promised that when God finally fixed everything up and established a new kingdom through his Messiah, Christ King, he would need to deal with the problem, the fundamental problem, of humanity's rebellion against him as our creator and ruler, with all its consequences. This takes us back to chapters 1 to 3 of this book and why it is such a central background for understanding the message of Christianity. The death of Jesus was God's answer to the problem of human rebellion against him. Perhaps the most famous Old Testament passage about this is one we've already looked at. Back in chapter 2, you may remember, we quoted the prophet Isaiah, and he was describing our basic rejection of God in these words, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. 
But that quote is only half of that sentence. The rest of the sentence reads like this. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Iniquity is not the most common word these days, of course. I've been known to describe the cost of toll roads in Sydney as iniquitous. And cheap sort of low-life degenerate establishments are sometimes called dens of iniquity. But the general idea of iniquity is straightforward enough. It means something grossly wrong or guilty or wicked. And the prophecy of Isaiah is saying that God has laid on him the guilt and wrongdoing of us all. We know already about the guilt and wrongdoing. That was chapter 2 and our rebellion against God. And we know that the rightful sentence against us and all of humanity for our rebellion against God is death and judgment. We saw that in chapter 3. But who is the him that all this iniquity and guilt is laid upon? In the rest of the extraordinary prophecy of Isaiah, it becomes very plain who this person is. It's a prophecy about a servant who will come to save God's people. Here is some of that passage. See, my servant will act wisely. He'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life to death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus says that his kind of kingship is to be a servant, to be one who will be rejected by men, and die as a ransom for many, and that after that he will rise to glory. It could not be plainer that Jesus sees himself fulfilling the words of this ancient promise of Isaiah. This was God's incredible plan. It was to send his own son into the world as a servant, to die as a substitute for rebels like us. Jesus died so that our iniquity might be laid on him. The logic of the whole thing is stunning and humbling. It's been unfolding throughout this book, and it goes like this. We all rebel against God as our creator and ruler. We all deserve his judgment. We all deserve death. 
Jesus was a man, but never rebelled against God. He didn't deserve any judgment or any death. But Jesus did willingly and deliberately die at the hands of rebellious humanity. Jesus died not for his own rebellion, but for ours. He died to take upon himself the punishment we deserved. He died as a ransom for many. This is what happened when a man named Jesus died by crucifixion on a hill just outside Jerusalem in around 33 AD. And it's no wonder that the day of his death became known as Good Friday. It's no wonder that the cross became the centre and symbol of Christianity, and that as Christianity grew and shaped Western civilization, the concept of humble, sacrificial service became a central value of our culture. The death of Jesus on behalf of rebels is the glorious and confounding twist that dominates the gospel narratives. His death was no accident and no failure. It was the supreme act of love. God sending his own son to die as our substitute, to die the death that we deserved, so that we could be set free from death and judgment. But what does this freedom mean? What are the consequences and implications of Jesus' death? Well, to answer this and to arrive at the final climactic truth of the Christian message, we turn to the even more extraordinary event that comes three days after Jesus' death. Well, there you go. There's part two of chapter four about Jesus' death. And as usual, please send me your comments and feedback. Send it to tonyjpain at me.com. Or you can go across to the website if you want to and jot them down in the comments section under this post. Once again, a huge thank you to the many of you who've been sending in feedback and ideas as the chapters and installments have rolled out. Uh, apologies that I haven't been able to respond individually to you all, as I normally do with the emails I get, but there's just too many of them, which is a joy. But keep it coming. The comments and the ideas have been hugely helpful as I've started going back through and going through the painful process of rewriting and editing and fixing these drafts up. So thanks once again for your involvement in this project. We're sort of on the home straight. A few more installments to go. Uh, and then hopefully the result will be a resource that we can all use to share with our friends and share the great message of the gospel of Jesus. Thanks again for being here this week. It's a privilege to talk to you as always. I'm Tony Payne. Bye for now.